Amen and amen to how we have just been led to song, sing and worship and pray. So thank you, Caleb and Sharon. Thank you, Adam and Sergey, And for those of you serving behind the scenes so that we could see and participate in all the ways that we have uh, this morning. Those of you who may not know who I am, my name is Sean. I also have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at Hesper Baptist Church. And my task this morning is... Uh, one that has been given by God's grace, which is a great privilege to lead us to continue to worship in the preaching of God's Word. I'm sure you have. I'm going to ask the question anyway. Do you ever have one of those days or one of those weeks where everything that could go wrong does go wrong? The last six days in my household and my world were like that. From car repairs, to leaky pipes, to groaning bodies, to just relational challenges outside of our home, every time we turned around, it seemed that the calamities just kept on coming. And up until last night, we just started laughing because we didn't really know what else to do. I'll spare you the details, but to suffice it to say, last week was one of the most frustrating on record for some time. In the midst of that, my father-in-law sent me a couple of pages <coughs> from a book <coughs> excuse me, by Charles Spurgeon. Though he relayed them in response to the wonderful members meeting we had last Sunday evening related to our church budget, they helped me and my family greatly. Reflecting on Isaiah 41:14, do not fear, I will help you, declares Yahweh, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, Spurgeon writes of how willing our Lord Jesus is to help us. He bought us with his blood. Will he not help us? He chose us before the world began. Will he not also help us today? He made the covenant for us in his blood. He set aside his glory and became a man that he might redeem us. And if he has done this for us, will he not surely help us? No. And then Spurgeon goes on to use this wonderful picture to help us see how small a thing it is for our Lord to help us. Imagine hearing a tiny little knock on your front door later today, and you open it, and there's an ant. And the ant is asking if you would share with it something to eat so that it is satisfied. How easy would it be for us to open a cupboard, to open the fridge, and to send that ant on its way with everything it would need to fill its little tummy. We would not even notice a dent it would make in our supply. And so it is with God in his all-sufficiency. Our needs are massive to us, but they are as nothing to him. So not only is he willing to help us, he is able to help us. My problem, and I suspect your problem too, is how easy it is for me to neglect trusting God in those crazy, busy, hectic, frustrating, hard, exhausting moments. I need, we need, constant resets, regular reminders, a rhythm of life that constantly draws our attention back to the almighty hand of God. I need help cultivating a trust that keeps my heart and my mind and soul from tailspins that crash me into deserted islands of fear, worry, anxiety, anger, 
and doubt. And knowing that we all need the same, let me read the passage that in God's kindness and God's providence helped me immensely this last week. A passage that reorients us to trust God, for trusting God is what results in holy rest. Trusting God's provision, trusting God's goodness, trusting God's faithfulness results in holy rest, which will help us in those moments, which are often that we encounter in life that would otherwise detract us from who He is for us today in Christ. My hope and prayer is that these reasons to trust God will compel us to find, to root in the rest that we're longing for in Him. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 16. I'm going to read verses 21 down through the end of the chapter. Exodus 16, it's pages 58, 59, and those aforementioned blue Bibles. Exodus 16, 21 through 28. And before I read that, let us pray again and ask the Lord to help us in line with what we sung before this point in our service. Let's pray. Lord, what we are about to consider is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but it's imparting a secret and hidden wisdom of God which you decreed before the ages for our glory. And apart from the help of your Spirit, Lord, it cannot be understood. And so we pray that you would help us by your Spirit, to reveal to us these wondrous truths about who you are, what you've done for us in Christ, and the profound rest that this provides for us, body, soul, heart, mind, spirit. And so, Lord, would you help us not just to understand the words on the page in terms of their meaning, not to understand the flow of thought or those types of things, but help us to interpret these spiritual truths as taught by your Holy Spirit. For we know the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly. But help us to be spiritual people, Lord, we pray. So give us the mind of Christ that we might be rightly instructed, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Exodus 16, 21 through 36, this is what the Holy Spirit says. Morning by morning, they gathered it, speaking about the manna, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what Yahweh has commanded Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to Yahweh. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to Yahweh. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And Yahweh said to Moses, 
How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what Yahweh has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before Yahweh to be kept throughout your generations. As Yahweh commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the tenth part of an ephah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Though short-lived, there's a brief break from the grumbling in the portion of Exodus that we have just read. But as the story continues, that will only be short-lived. And it will get worse as the grumbling in the next chapter is going to lead to a fight, to a quarrel. In the meantime, sadly, there's also, there is no pause to the disobedience on the part of some of the Israelites. Yet at the same time, there's amazingly no pause in the miracles either. The Lord continues to be gracious to his people over the course of an incredible week, a week that becomes the pattern for the next 40 years. You'll notice the time markers in the passage which serve as helpful text divisions. The morning by morning in verse 21 slows down with the sixth day, from verses 22 to 26. Then there is the seventh day from verses 27 to 30. Then there are 40 years in 31 through 36. And we'll take, take, take each of those in turn and in each discover a reason to trust God which when we do results in holy rest. The first of those reasons in verses 21 through 26 is this. Trusting God's provision results in holy rest. God will supply all that we need so that body and soul we will find the rest they were made for in worshiping him. Trusting God's provision results in holy rest. Though some of the people doubted in verse 20 that we saw last week, and they left the manna until the next morning, which is when it stank and worms were in it, it kindles Moses' anger uh, because of their disobedience. And though that happens, verse 21, God's grace continues. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. So in God's kindness, God provides... And then to interject with a, a relevant aside, in wisdom, God also teaches us discipline and diligence. Quite literally, if you did not work, you would not eat, for the manna would just be gone at a certain point in the day. Recently, one of my kids showed me a meme of a guy zonked out in a rocking chair, and it said on it, don't blame lazy people, they didn't do anything. The dad jokes are wearing off. Sadly, lazy people won't amount to much either, and Scripture has much to say about the sin of sloth, of, of laziness. Remember that work is a good gift given in the garden before the fall. The problem is the curse, not work. 
And unless we are legitimately in a position that requires us to depend on the charity and kindness of others as God prospers them, we ought to engage in God-honoring work. Now, on this, much more could be said, but another time, for the emphasis of the text is rest, not labor. We see this by what happens on the sixth day. What happens is just as the Lord said to Moses back in verse 5, on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. That's what they experience in verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And as we can derive from the footnote in verse 36, an omer was just over two liters uh, of volume of material that they would gather to uh, bake and boil for their food. Now apparently, this causes a stir for all the leaders of Israel come to Moses and they told Moses, Moses, today was different. There was actually twice as much. As one writer puts it, I quote, God gives Israel, as it were, a surprise party. He performs this miracle of providing double within the miracle of providing daily bread so that they can engage in holy rest. It is when they came and reported this miracle of double provision that Moses said in verse 23, this is what Yahweh has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to Yahweh. So bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, and everything that's left over, keep it for the morning. So even before the giving of the law, which includes the Sabbath command in Exodus 20, God is setting the pattern and demonstrating his provision for the instructions that will follow. And while this is the first place in Scripture that the noun Sabbath is used, it is not the first place in Scripture that we read about this pattern of resting on the seventh day. As we learned back in Genesis, God's end game for creation is for us to be in communion with the Lord of heaven and earth. Listen to what it says there uh, in Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So time is set aside with holy purpose for creatures of space and matter to behold the glory of God, to worship Him, to fellowship with Him. And so God blessing and sanctifying that is setting apart the seventh day is an invitation for us to commune with the Lord of heaven and earth. And back in Genesis, all of this happens in the context of this, the Eden and this holy temple and the, of creation, which Adam and Eve are placed into as these holy priests, these vice regents, and they have fellowship with God. And now we come to this in Exodus. And if we fast forward and cheat a little bit to Exodus 39 and 40, we find these echoes of plenty with creation, rest, and God's intention for a relationship with Himself. Listen very carefully to Exodus 39 and 32 which says, thus all the work of the tabernacle, which they are going to build, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. 
just like God's work was finished on the seventh day. Later in Exodus 39, we read, According to all that Yahweh had commanded, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it, as Yahweh had commanded him them, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. These are echoes of what happens in creation, in Genesis, with resting and making and blessing. This work that is completed, God saw what he had made. Moses saw what the people had made. God had done all the work that he had made. The people had done all the work that they had made. God blessed creation. Moses blessed the people. All because he intends for us to enjoy a relationship of holy rest in communion with himself. God is going to command his people to make a tent of meeting so that they can meet with him. The same God who spoke ten times in creation, who gives the ten words at Mount Sinai, along with the instructions for the tabernacle, for the tent of meeting. And one of those commandments that we'll come to in weeks to come is found in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. This is the pattern. This is not new. This would have been familiar in some measure And Exodus 16 is continuing to build upon this creation uh, ordinance, building upon the foundation in Genesis in preparation for the Sabbath that is to come. The commandment, the word, the law that is to follow. And if you think about this, originally, this commandment would have been obeyed with God's presence in the pillar of cloud and fire visible to the people of God visible in the tent of meeting, which was smack bang in the middle of the people of Israel. Leviticus 26.2 ties together these two themes of Sabbath and the Lord's resting place. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary, the place of his dwelling. Why? Because he says, I am Yahweh. That creation, the heavens and earth function as a cosmic temple that God had made, which his presence rests upon, and the tabernacle and the temple that God's presence rests upon are portrayed as miniature creations. The seven days of creation are mirrored by God speaking seven times to Moses with instructions for building the tabernacle. And as we will soon see, all of the details And there are many chapters of them to come. All of the details of the tabernacle direct the gaze of the worshiper back to the temple of creation, of the most holy place of Eden, where the first man and first woman enjoyed unhindered communion with God before their awful rebellion. This is what is being built upon here in Exodus 16. Six days they gather, the seventh day they rest. Because on the seventh day, God doesn't provide any manna because he rests as well. And that is to be a solemn rest, a holy day to Yahweh. God in his grace has not changed his end game for creation. His glory rested upon the tabernacle upon, uh, of, the, of, the, of Eden. His glory will rest upon the tabernacle of the miniature creation that they are soon going to construct. And at the tabernacle in Exodus 40, at the very end, we read, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. 
And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. So in short, tying together Genesis and what's happening here in Exodus, the heaven and earth originally were created as a big temple, big. The tabernacle that they're soon about to make is a miniature creation, and over both, God rests, God dwells, and God invites. Commune with me. Have fellowship with me. This is where you will find true and lasting rest. And so the psalmist writes, One thing I have asked of Yahweh that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. So all that God communicates By resting on the seventh day in Genesis, he continues in Exodus and the Sabbath and the tabernacle. And here in Exodus 16, God is providing for his people an opportunity to them to rest from their work, just as he rested from his, so that they can take in the glory and the grandeur of the one who made all things. It's not a new concept even though God's covenant people are being further prepared for this covenant observance. And this is why it is called a solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to Yahweh. It's not merely the stoppage of work. It's stoppage of work to give time and space and energy to express enjoyment of God with his people. And relating to him thus is ultimate refreshment. Put yourself in the Israelite shoes for a minute. They wake up on the seventh day. And they don't have to worry about getting up in enough time to gather the manna before the sun melts it. The rhythm is different. They didn't have to think about walking around and bending over and gathering up and bringing it back and measuring it out and dispersing it so that everyone had enough. That would have felt so good. With that different pace, they could move slower, reflect deeper, thank God for the gift of rest that he was giving and would continue to give. Perhaps time and space for these reflections would give room and rise to anticipating the future, the promised land that they were being led to. As they munched on manna with family and friends that they didn't need to collect that day, they could reflect together on the redemption that he's orchestrated on their behalf so that they could be brought into covenant relationship with the Lord and creator of heaven and earth. They would be reminded that God showed up to deliver us. And they would do this, marveling at the miracle within the miracle within the miracle. Not only was God providing manna daily, not only was God providing double manna on day six, the manna wasn't spoiled on the morning of day seven like it would have been any other morning had they kept it. Look at verses 24 and 25. They laid aside it aside till the morning. Itself is an act of faith, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. 
And Moses said, eat it today. For today is the Sabbath. So Yahweh, you, today you will not find it out in the field. God is going out of his way, as it were, to ensure us that we're not ultimately made to work, but that we were made to worship, which we certainly do in our work, but we uniquely do in our rest. In our rest, we worship God without production, saying in faith that we trust him, saying in humility that he doesn't need us to work. We're not merely cogs in his universal machine that exist to get things done for him. That was the message of Pharaoh. That's what the gods of this world offer to us. Sin as master offers, takes, and never delivers on what was advertised. God, on the other hand, through Christ, calls us to himself and grants us the rest that comes with our embodied souls in communion with him. That's what Israel experienced when they ate on the seventh day without working. That, in part, is what is envisioned in the creation pattern. That, in part, is what is anticipated in the Sabbath commands. And when we recognize, as we did last Sunday, that God has provided the true bread that has come down from heaven, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, when by faith we feast on Him, when we gather not on the Sabbath, but on the first day of the week, we are acknowledging that God has provided absolutely everything so that our souls can find rest and joy in relationship with Him. It's so beautiful. That's why Caleb introduced this song for us this morning from Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, Jesus says. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Sabbath rest is what it points to the rest we have in Christ. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is what is being anticipated here. And them being invited to rest. But some of us, upon hearing such things, are skeptics. Doubting the goodness of God's provision. Debating the blessing of God's instruction. God's Word says, blessed are those who fear the Lord, who walk in His ways. And we're like, I'm not really sure. I don't think so. Some of them ignore what Moses says in verses 25 and 26. He says, you're not going to find anything on the seventh day, so don't even go out and gather any. But on the seventh day, we are told, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. This brings us to a second expression of trusting God that results in holy resting. We trust in God's provision that results in holy rest. Trusting in God's goodness also results in holy rest. Trusting in God's goodness results in holy rest. Apparently, some of the Israelites embraced what we would call today hustle culture. The grind set, as the term has been coined, of working as hard as possible for as long as possible to achieve, build, acquire, succeed, earn, 
get more, and so on. This is a soul-crushing treadmill, and there are healthy ways younger generations are recoiling from the example of older generations. Sorry, baby boomers, uh, no offense. Some are discovering the vanity of what the writer of Ecclesiastes has captured. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. And then he says, I considered all my hands had done. And the toil I expended in doing it, and behold, what was vanity? Striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Greed and workaholism and acquisition and more, it's empty. This is a trajectory that some of the Israelites are on here. As Jesus warned, you can gain the whole world, but you can lose your soul in the process. Think about what's going on here in Exodus 16 and how contrary it is to the good gift God is extending here. If this undisclosed number of people waking up with the manna they already need for the day as God had provided, hustling to get ahead, to get more. Victor Hamilton says, the idea of security but outside the will of God seems preferable to insecurity and uncertainty but inside the will of God. Let me say that again. The idea of security but outside the will of God seems preferable to insecurity and uncertainty but inside the will of God. But there's no rest outside the will of God. There's only constant turmoil as we doubt God's goodness and ignore God's commands and forget our former slavery and push beyond the boundaries of God-given human limitations. There isn't more to be had there. On the surface, our hustle can look industrious. Without discernment, our grinding it out can seem wise. But notice that those who went for more came home empty-handed. And I imagine that that would be a little bit of an awkward walk back to your tent, as the rest of the people who didn't go out and look for the man are, are wondering what you're up to. Can kind of picture, maybe husbands and wives, can I told you we shouldn't have gone, and you know, the, 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 you know, the neighbor who followed you is like, wow, why did I even think this was a good idea? Like, what's going on here? That would be awkward. What's sobering, though, is the warning that should, root, that should root us to the spot in verse 28. He always said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? This sounds quite similar to something that the Lord has already said. Back in chapter 10, verse 3, where he says, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? You know who he said that to? He said that to Pharaoh. And now he speaks similarly to some of the Israelites. Now he's speaking to Moses, the you in verse 28, it's like a y'all, it's plural. He's speaking to the people through Moses. 
And that he speaks this way is sobering, given what he said to the Israelites back in chapter 15, verse 26. If you will diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh your healer. But if the Lord is starting to talk to them like he talked to Pharaoh, that's a significant cause for concern because if they continue to act like Pharaoh, he's going to eventually start treating them like Pharaoh. That he doesn't immediately, that he is graciously showing them who he is amidst their grumbling and disobedience is his kindness. And remember that God's kindness is meant to lead us towards repentance. Though he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, it does not mean he is never angry. His patience towards sinners will one day reach its holy end in judgment. But for Israel at this juncture, on their way to the mountain, he is patient. As for our world today, we also see that he's being kind and patient and that Jesus has not yet returned to judge the living and the dead. And so his kindness today is meant to lead you towards repentance, such as Adam prayed about earlier in our service. And just like in the previous episodes of these grumbling moments in Wilderness University, we see God's heart on display writ large for his people. Look at what he says in verse 29. See! Look! Yahweh has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. This wonderful insight into the heart of God and his commands. The Sabbath is a gift. It's not a burden. He's given it to us. He didn't give us to the Sabbath as though the Sabbath was some entity unto itself to be kept for its own sake. You remember how our Lord Jesus puts it in Mark 2, 27? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And Jesus, who is Lord of the Sabbath, as we heard from Matthew, strips all of the ridiculous legalism of human invention away from it. He heals on the Sabbath to show us more fully the gift that resting in the goodness of God is. And that is communicated here in how the Lord speaks about it. Back here in Exodus 16, God provides for them so they can keep the Sabbath. He commands the Sabbath to give them holy rest. All the debates through the ages about what one can and cannot do on the Sabbath, it really rather misses the point even as we approach this text, we can get caught up on all these details. And in verse 23, people wonder, were they to bake and boil everything they collected on the sixth day? Or was just what they wanted to eat on the sixth day? And so they left raw manna for the seventh day and baked to boil on that day? Or, or, or did they bake and boil everything so they didn't have to cook on the Sabbath? Like, what's going on here? Some conclude that they could bake and boil what they wanted and leave unprepared manna for cooking and eating on the next day, which is where I'd land. 
Others have wondered, as one of our life groups did this week, were they allowed to go outside their tent? It says, remain in your place. Well, I would say, of course, they were able to go outside of their tent, least of all to relieve themselves, because Deuteronomy 23 says you had to do that outside the camp. I don't think God intended for us to hold our bladders the whole day so that we couldn't do what we needed to do as human beings. It gets rather silly. At least it can. Well, there's nothing wrong with asking such well-intentioned questions. We can easily miss the point because we're so inclined to doubt God's goodness. We're always trying to figure out what's He taking or keeping rather than what He's keeping us from and giving. The newsflash to His covenant people is that He's an entirely different master than the tyrannical serpent king Pharaoh, that He's good, that His commands and laws are for their benefit. In this case, He marks the end of their 400 years of oppression with a a one-day-a-week vacation from work so they can enjoy the one who gave it to them. The six-day labor, seven-day rest pattern doesn't just draw us back to God's endgame for humanity and communion with Himself. The Sabbath institution here and more fully in the covenant to come marks remembrance and celebration that God has redeemed His people. Deuteronomy 5.15 reads and connects these, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And Yahweh your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, Yahweh your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day, to remember how different he is from the serpent king they were slaves to. He gives us a day to gather like this to remember what He's done for us in Christ, not as a burden, but as a good gift. It's a blessing. It's relief and holy rest for the body and for the soul and for the community of God's people as they stop to recount all that He's done for us. And similarly, in light of the greater exodus through Christ, we gather on the day He rose from the dead marking what the New Testament calls the Lord's Day, wherein we experience the goodness of God in an even greater measure. And by their resting, by our resting from the normal activities of the week, we exercise faith in the future promise of rest, even as we communicate to everyone around us the hope and provision of Christ, because we don't run around like headless chickens as the rest of the world does. We live in a culture that's 24-7 self. And we're saying, by being in this room this morning, there is something so much better. Look at what God has given us in Christ. Look at the rest You're not at work. You're not doing the normal things that you would normally do. You're here to embrace the good gift that God is giving us in this very moment. We're stopping together to engage in holy rest as an invitation to the rest of the world to come feast on 
God's provision of Christ. Come and taste of God's goodness in Christ, not only for the present, but for an eternity future. As the chapter concludes, and this will be the shortest of the three points or reasons, as the chapter concludes, this weekly rhythm becomes the pattern for the next 40 years, which is to be remembered by future generations as instructed in verses 31 through 36. Recounting God's faithfulness breeds trust in God's faithfulness, and trusting in God's faithfulness is what also results in holy rest. Trusting God's faithfulness results in holy rest. There's a lot of discussion here that comes out as to who wrote this short portion of Exodus and why it's included here. Uh, We cannot conclude that it was Moses, where it seems editorial, inspired after the fact to give this incredible summary of what God did day in, day out, week in, week out for 40 years. And chapter 17 just picks up, uh, you know, they're still in the wilderness. I'm 38, which for some of you is old. For some of you is like, I wish I was only 38. And some of you think it's a perfect age. I mentioned this for perspective. For longer than my whole life, God provided manna every single morning, except for the seventh day. For longer than my whole life, God provided double manna every sixth day. And for longer than my whole life, God gave them the gift of rest by ensuring the manna they'd collected the day before didn't rot on the seventh day. Do you think he wants us to trust him? You think he wants us to know he will provide for us so that we can order our lives around him? Do you think he wants us to know that his commandments are good? And that first and foremost, we should obey the commandment by repenting and believing in the gospel so that we can be reconciled to this one in whom we find true rest. Do you think he wants us to know that Having trusted Christ for deliverance, we can trust Him every single day of our lives. Which doesn't only bring a stunning measure of rest for the moment, but an assurance of eternal rest. I know He wants us to know these things because of the instructions that He gives in verses 31 to 36. This manna, coriander seed, white, the taste of which was like wafers made with honey, Sounds delicious. We have a four-year-old who gets grumpy in our home when there isn't honey in the house. And this is an object lesson for Israel and a taste of what's to come. What is the land of promise flowing with? Milk and honey. And Moses said, this is what Yahweh has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations. There's another miracle. Nothing happens to it. It doesn't rot or go bad so that the future generations may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so Moses says to Aaron, take a jar. Aaron takes a jar, and he puts it in a place where very few things will end up. It goes in the Ark of the Testament, the Ark of the Covenant. It's in the most holy place. And when Israel was on the move, they would have seen the jar. Maybe there were times when they brought it out so that everyone could see, look, this is the stuff that Yahweh fed us with every day for 40 years. You can trust Him. 
all the way till they came to a habitable land. They ate manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. A record of this is kept to communicate to future generations that Yahweh can be trusted, that we can rest in his faithfulness even as we trust him to bring us into the Sabbath rest that is anticipated in the promised land that he brings his old covenant people to. As the writer to the Hebrews pens, for if Joshua had given them rest, he was the one to lead them across the border of the Jordan into the promised land. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And Christ is that Sabbath rest, and the Sabbath rest that is to come is an entrance into the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. And God is saying I will, he, he, that he will provide everything that we need so that we can rest in him. He is saying to us that his commands are good. We can trust in his goodness and find rest in this. He's saying that he is faithful. We can trust him and find rest in this. In the midst of the chaos, the hectic, the pressure to conform to the pattern of this world and not to the pattern of Christ. In the midst of the busy and the hard and the 24-7 hustle, the religions of works righteousness, the suffering, the sorrow, the sin, God offers holy rest. And may He help us to trust He will provide enough so that we can stop to engage in it. His goodness in giving such a gift and His faithfulness to bring us to our full and final rest in Christ. Let me pray. Father, thank You again for showing us Your heart. 